Hello, thank you for watching Talking Sports with Evan here. I uh, appreciate you all checking it out and want to say a thank you to Matt Pauley for uh, coming on and joining here to talk to Milwaukee Brewers. The season did not end how most of us wanted it to end, which we would have liked the World Series appearance, but just wasn't in the cards uh, this season, even though at times it did seem like it could be. But unfortunately, it was not. But now it's the time to kind of reflect on the season that was and kind of preview a little bit what could be coming up in the year 2022 for the Milwaukee Brewers. And seems to be there's a lot that could be coming up. And then later on as well, I'm, I'm going to talk a little Packers-Bears as well as the Bucks uh, ring ceremony uh, yesterday as well. So before I do any of that, first want to thank you, Matt, uh, for coming on and spending some time talking some Brewers with me. You bet, Evan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so before we do go any further, um, I know you, uh, just so our listeners, viewers know uh, a little bit, uh, you know, obviously you work with 620 uh, WTMJ with uh, Brewers Extra Innings and then Brewers Weekly and um, whatnot for the station, but if you just kind of want to let the listeners know where else they can find you and check out your work as well. Yeah, absolutely. The best way, just find me on Twitter, at Matt Pauley on air, M-A-T-T-P-A-U-L-E-Y on air. It's also scrolling on the uh, the bottom of the uh, the screen there. So uh, I've got a lot going on, uh, doing a lot of different things. We're gearing up for uh, UWGB, women's basketball. I'm their play-by-play broadcaster, so we'll be doing uh, a lot of that. I do a lot of small college basketball play-by-play uh, throughout Wisconsin and, and do some other stuff uh, at a national level as well uh, with the uh, Sports Map Radio Network. So I'm all over the place, and uh, just following me on Twitter for folks that want to follow along is the best way to do it. Cool. Well, like I said, I appreciate you coming on, um, talking to Milwaukee Brewers. So kind of wanted to do this, you know, kind of a sandwich style, some positive stuff, talk about the disappointing finish, and then talk about next year. But I think the first kind of thing to talk about came out today, a few hours ago, actually. And I know he was a lightning rod for the majority of this uh, Brewer season. Um, Andy Haynes will not be returning as the hitting coach in 2022, and uh, neither is his assistant as well, and they're kind of going a new direction with the hitting department. That surprise you at all, or is it what you kind of expected? No, it doesn't surprise me. Let me start by saying Andy Haynes is a good hitting coach. Um, Just because he's a good hitting coach doesn't mean you get to keep your job. Uh, But Andy Haynes is a good hitting coach. A lot of the criticism that he received throughout the course of the year was probably unwarranted. I don't think... I don't think a lot of people understand the, the lack of an impact that a hitting coach can, can actually have. Uh, a hitting coach is a kind of a functional job. Uh, it's an extra set of eyes. Uh, hitting comes down to actual hitters. That doesn't mean that really good hitting coaches can't unlock something in players, and that doesn't mean that really bad hitting coaches can't mess players up. I'm not saying that, but for the most part, if you're just kind of the standard average Major League Baseball hitting coach, you're not having the impact on the team uh, that I think a lot of fans uh, think that the hitting coach has. That being said, this team had offensive issues uh, during the course of uh, the season, at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year, and most importantly, during the postseason. I'm a big believer in when you are in a championship window, it doesn't matter what the sport is, when you are in a championship window, you go look at the moment your season ended and you figure out why your season ended and you fix that problem. So the reason the Brewers' season ended early was because they didn't hit in the postseason. We can discuss all these other things that became, as you said, lightning rod issues, sacrificing and and pitching, and who's uh, should this guy start on short rest? Should this pitcher come out of the game at this moment? 
All those are fun issues to kind of discuss. But the reason the Brewers season came to an end as soon as it did was simply because the team did not hit. And the cost of that is Andy Haynes is not going to return uh, as the team's hitting coach. The other side, he has a very, very deep background with Christian Yelich. They have known each other for a long time. He worked with Yelich in the minor leagues. He was largely hired because of that connection with Yelich. From what we uh, from what we understand, that was a big uh, plus, a big benefit for him. So the fact that Yelich has had t- such a tough last couple seasons, that probably doesn't help Haynes all that much either. I do think it's worth noting a lot of players for the Brewers improved offensively under his tutelage. Not everybody, and Yelich is obviously the biggest one that you look at, but there were some guys who really, you know, you look at a Luis Urias, and they added kind of a hitch the way uh, he he sets up where he was kind of dropping that shoulder almost. Uh, Omar Narvaez having the season he had, Aviseo Garcia having the season he had. There are a lot of players that took a step, step forward with Andy Haynes. I don't know if he's going to get another job as a major league baseball hitting coach, but he's going to be working in baseball without a doubt. Yeah. And I think you nailed it on the head is not a lot of people truly do understand what a hitting coach does and doesn't do. And I think um, Will Salmon with the athletic earlier, shortly after they got Willie Adamas kind of laid out a little bit on what exactly his role was, which was figure out what Ian Adamas' swing um why his you know he hasn't been productive uh toward his tail end in Tampa Bay and figure that out and I think it definitely worked because Adamas came in and that's kind of the spark plug the Brewers needed uh, was it May 22nd I want to say is Willie Adamas day mm-hmm. am I getting the dates wrong yep. no May yeah, 22nd May 22nd you know Willie Adamas day and the Brewers kind of took off there can you kind of talk about the impact that he had um on this Brewer team and I guess why he went from a one, I want to say 190 hitter before he got traded to, I think he uh, was around 300 during his time with the Brewers. Yeah, I mean, he played at an MVP level for the most of the time with the Brewers. I'm not convinced he was fully healthy at the end of the season. You know, he spent some time on the injured list. At one point uh, before going on the injured list, he talked about the fact that he wasn't going to get to 100% again this year. He never reiterated that. Later on when he came back, he said he was 100%. But I just... I feel like he probably was not fully healthy when the season came to an end, but really who is fully healthy yeah. at the end of a 162 game uh, major league baseball season. But Willie Adamas was exactly what this team needed. He filled so many roles, played a solid defensive shortstop. He extended the lineup. He created more offense out of the shortstop position. He created energy and excitement and urgency in the clubhouse and in the dugout uh, just uh, maybe after Orlando Arcia left, this team might have been missing some of that uh, kind of extra excitement that came along with uh, with with Arcia. And Adamas brought that along. He was just a beacon of positive energy, and I feel like that filtered across pretty much everybody uh, and, and player. I mean, it was it was really he was just fun to watch. That's the bottom line. Like from a fan perspective, how do you see that? You just see a guy who makes everything fun. It was fun when he was playing. He made everybody else's successes uh, be fun. I think the thing that I really appreciate about Willie Adamas is how much he took joy in other people being successful. And that should be the definition of a team. Uh, as, As a team, you should be taking that joy. But it seemed like it was that much more with him. 
And maybe if we step away from baseball for a second and just look at it from a world perspective, if we all celebrated each other's successes the way Willie Adamas celebrated his teammates' successes, I think we as a society would be a whole lot better for it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, uh, the energy you talked about, he brought to Milwaukee was just contagious all across the board. It looked like guys were, you know, not saying they weren't having fun before he got there, but just that, that funness picked up as soon as he got there, the whole, uh, uh, claw up. I want to, is that what, yeah. Claw yeah, up that whole up, thing. Yep. And yeah, you know, it was just a, uh, very fun season. Unfortunately didn't end the way we wanted it to, but I guess starting from the beginning, of the season you know this is a team that you know as the brewers like having is guys that are very versatile guys that can play a lot of different positions hence escobar urias you talked about i think yelich and uh wong and your catchers are probably the only ones that are kind of shoehorned for the most part into one position aside from vogelbach and telez but you had urias you had um uh, escobar as i mentioned they traded for late and then bradley jr kane Garcia, all guys that can play numerous positions. Is there anyone this season that truly surprised you in a, first as a positive um, this season on who they, they had on the team? Because I know in 2020, a lot of guys' numbers underperformed. Uh, for those that were you know listeners to Brewers' warm-up, the intro talked about bounce-back year. Um, who really surprised you this year with, the I guess, the bounce-back year in 2021? Yeah, I think uh, it'd be hard to look past Avisao Garcia having a 29 home run season. That sets a career high for him. And considering what he had done uh, in in the previous season, I mean, you're looking at um, in 2019 or 2020, excuse me, um, he had two home runs. Now, admittedly, it was a 60-game season, not a 162-game season. But even if you uh, push that out to a 162-game season, that's what, seven home runs, eight home runs. So to go from that number all the way to 29 when he had never hit more than 20 over the course of his career, uh, he's probably the guy, and, and not to just stick with power, but I think what Luis Urias did this year through a lot of adversity too. Like that's the thing, uh, the, the thing that I'm always going to remember about Urias and where I really gained so much respect for him was when he lost his job essentially because they brought in Willie Adamas. So he was being moved into that utility role. Uh, he did his press conference in Spanish. And he's a perfectly fine English speaker. Like, I, I've never had, uh, he, he has an accent because it's not his first language, but there's, his, his English is fine. He wanted to make sure that the message that he sent across after he had lost his job, that nothing was lost in translation. So he made the decision to do it in Spanish just to make sure that everything came out correctly. And he was a team first guy. And obviously he became a huge part of this team. He hit a bunch of home runs. He looks like I'm the first one to say you don't, you know, base future things off of a player's single year performance. But if Urias can continue the trend that he's on right now, he could turn into a 30 home run guy. And I don't think we ever, he he came up as kind of a, a light hitting second baseman more than anything else. And now we're talking about him being maybe a 30 home run third baseman. He's going to have an opportunity to win that everyday third baseman's job. I would think 
going into spring training next year unless the team does something, unless they identify third base as being a spot where they can really have an offensive upgrade. And if that uh, situation presents itself, I'm sure they would go for it. But those are kind of the, the two guys, and it has a lot to do with the power. Uh, yeah, that's that's how you score runs in today's Major League Baseball. you got to hit home runs. The Brewers did not advance in the postseason because they didn't hit many home runs. Rowdy Telez had two home runs, and that, that's the extent of the power over a four-game series against the Atlanta Braves. So to see what Garcia and Urias were able to do uh, when it comes to their power was probably uh, the most pleasant surprise uh, over the course of the season. Yeah, definitely a surprise because uh, last season, and as you mentioned, you don't take you know one season as a, a tell on how something's going to go. But in today's society, is we want immediate results. But when the Brewers traded Grisham and Davies to San Diego for Lauer and Urias, early returns were not that good. Um, it looked, you know, Urias had issues with an injury and then COVID, Lauer, kind of, you know, COVID as well. And they just, you know, 2020 just didn't seem to work out for either of them. And early on this season, it didn't look like it was going to work out for uh, Urias with the bat to start off with because he was struggling as a lot of the Brewers were. Lauer struggling a little bit as well. And then they both seem to get comfortable and uh, completely turn things around. And, you know, Lauer, he's one that kind of surprised me a little bit after seeing what he did last year. Yeah, I really like Eric Lauer. Um, and I think when you look at what he did specifically to the second half of the season, it was it was really impressive. He doesn't – I don't get it. He, he did not get, uh, in my opinion – the credit that he absolutely deserved. I'm trying to pull up the numbers right now just to make sure I get this right because they were really, really impressive. From June 27th, check that, from June 26th, excuse me, uh, through the end of the season, he pitched to a 6-2 and two record, a 2.23 ERA, and had a, a 188 average against. I actually, I, I, at some point, it's on my Twitter, at Matt Pauley on air, uh, I did a, a rundown of him against Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, and Freddie Peralta from that date on, from June 26th on. And a number of the numbers, he was better than all those guys at. When you look at average against, I think his ERA may have been uh, the best among the bunch as well. Uh, we, we looked at it as the big three with those top three guys because of what they had done over the course of the entire season. But Eric Lauer was right there with them as one of the best in baseball from really the start of July on or late or late June on. Uh, and I think he changes what maybe you do going forward because let's say you want to bring in a big bat and you're not going to get that big bat in free agency. All of a sudden, you've got this pitching surplus. And I know the old cliche is you can never have too much pitching. And I agree with that. But one of these others, what, maybe it is Eric Lauer, maybe it's Adrian Hauser, maybe it's one of these other guys, when all of a sudden you look at the assortment of starting pitchers that you have, which one of these guys might be more valuable to you playing for another team because of what you can get back for them? And I think Dave Stearns and Matt Arnold are going to have to kind of think through that this offseason because that might be the quickest and easiest way to upgrade what this club is going to do from an offensive standpoint by spinning off one of their pitchers. Yeah, you mentioned pitching, and that's kind of where I want to go next is uh, Corbin Burns especially. Um, back in 2019, it didn't look like he was going to be around for much longer um, with the way he was pitching and completely turning things around to 
in my opinion, should be, and I know I'm not the only one that feels this way, should be the NL Cy Young winner this season, which is how dominant he was. And I know you and I, even through the struggles, we're still, you know, pretty high on him. You don't give up on a talent like him. And he obviously paid that back. Um, with Between him, Woody, Peralta, uh, Hauser, Lauer, all under team control for a while, um, pitching only going to get better, right? The starting rotation. Yeah, and you didn't even mention Aaron Ashby, who's going to get a chance to win yep. a starting job in spring training. And Another then potentially one of the Ethan pitching. Small. Yeah, Ethan Small is the next guy that I was going to mention. I think it's really possible that probably not this year. I think Small makes his major league debut this upcoming year, but it might look a whole lot the way they did with Ashby, where they bring Small up and give him an opportunity to pitch out of the bullpen first. But to me, it feels like uh, if th- there is a good chance that in, say, 2023, the Brewers' starting rotation could be Burns, Woodruff, Peralta, Ashby, and Small. And as long as Ashby is the guy that the Brewers expect him to be, and same thing with Small, and that's a that's a big if because there's no guarantee that guys are going to continue to develop and turn into the guys that you expect them to be. So, yeah, I'm not counting the eggs quite yet, but if those guys do turn into the pitchers that the Brewers expect them to turn into, that's as good of a five-man rotation as exists in baseball. And I didn't even mention Eric Lauer's name, who I just praised. I didn't mention Adrian Hauser's name. Hauser's got um, one of the best pitches in all of baseball with that sinker that he can just throw and throw and throw. He can tell you, hey, I'm about to throw you the sinker, and hitters still can't do anything against it. Uh, The pitching surplus that the Brewers have is I'm not totally familiar with every other system's um, you know, prospects and, and developmental pitch, you know, players in the, the, the minor leagues when it comes to pitching. But I can't think of many organizations that have the internal candidates for rotation over the next few years the way the Brewers do. Yeah, and you, you, brought, about, you brought up something I wanted, I wanted to actually ask you about. It's almost like you're reading my mind. You, know, you brought up potentially trading or moving some of that pitching surplus. Hater's name gets thrown in there too because he's going to be due for a big raise um, moving forward with arbitration and whatnot. Um, ob- first base is an obvious answer because they could use a long-term first base option. I'm not sure if it's necessarily currently on the 40-man roster, and, although Talaz did do some good things and Vogelbach's good piece off the bench. Um, is that kind of the area you think they would address, which has kind of been a huge issue since Prince Fielder left? Or is it third base or is it just uh, – maybe outfield, like where do you see them targeting a bigger bat for the lineup? Yeah, that's, um, they're going to, what they're going to do is they're going to see what's available out there. Like that's, they're going to say, you know what, we can, we can upgrade offensively at first base. We can upgrade uh, offensively. Let's say a Visayo Garcia makes the decision to opt out. They can, they can say, okay, right field is now an opportunity. If we can go find a big bat outfielder, uh, that is a that's another uh, that's another opportunity to uh, to possibly uh, upgrade. You uh, you look at third base. Yeah, Luis Urias did a really nice job. But if they all of a sudden uh, have an opportunity to bring in a big bat, and to me that that's that's the number one question going into this offseason, Evan. Can they find another All Star caliber bat to put in the middle of the lineup? Probably the the two biggest questions whether Christian Yelich can become Christian Yelich again, but to go along with that, I feel like this team, they're in a a competitive window right now. They are in a championship window. 
they need at least one more legitimate all-star quality bat that can do damage, extra base hits, home runs, um, that sort of thing. Now, you talk about Josh Hader specifically. Uh, MLB Trade Rumors recently did their projected arbitration salaries. They've been doing this forever. They've got some algorithm that they put everything in, and they can project out that if a player went to arbitration, this is how much money they would probably make. Now, a lot of times the Brewers end up either non-tendering someone and you know coming to an agreement eventually or just uh, before they even go to arbitration, coming to an agreement. And a lot of times that player makes the decision to stay with the Brewers under their you know quote-unquote market value. But when you look at Josh Hader, his projection for arbitration for next year would be $10 million. And you consider how much money Christian Yelich is going to make as his contract is going to kick in next year. If you've got the, the money that Yelich is making and you've got the money that Hader's making, there you got about a quarter of the team's salary locked in to two single players. Uh, if they're, say, at around $120 million for, uh, for payroll for next season, that's, that's, a, that's a high percentage of salary that goes to two players. I've always said that at some point, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier when we were talking about you know, spinning off maybe a starting pitcher, what pitcher can be more valuable to you playing for another team than playing for you? I always thought at some point in time, Josh Hader might become more valuable for the Brewers playing for another team because what he would be able to return. I don't know if that's this year or not. It's a really scary time to be considering that because Devin Williams is coming off an injury. And it's a, it was a, a simple, basic surgery, but I've always been a believer that you never really know how a human body is going to react to any type of surgery. So if Devin Williams wouldn't have punched a wall and if he would have performed in the postseason – and performed at a really high level, I think the narrative is a little bit different right now because you can at least kind of say, well, if you don't have Josh Hader, you've got a guy in Devin Williams who is ready to take over that ninth inning role. Now, if you make that decision, all of a sudden, you've got a guy coming off an injury. There, there's no guarantee that Brad Boxberger is going to be back. You know, the seventh, eighth, ninth inning was such a lockdown thing for the Brewers this past season. And if you were to move Hader, only one of those guys could potentially be back in a different role and coming off an injury and coming off surgery. So I feel like this team is probably better off bringing back Hader and paying him that money. Who knows? Like, I think, I think Mark Atanasio does a really good job at spending money and he likes to refer to it as punching above his weight when it comes to, you know, the team's weight, when you consider market size and things like that. Maybe they work out a deal and they get Josh Hader to stick around long term and he signs a, a club friendly contract. I don't know. I don't I don't think he's jumping to do that, especially when you're you know, the, the, the shelf life on someone in his position can be kind of short. So if you're a hater, you probably want to make sure that that first contract that you get as a as a major league baseball free agent is going to be a contract that sets you up for the rest of your life. But it's a, it's a really, this is a really long answer to your question, Evan, and I'm not just trying to drone on and on and on and on and on, uh, but it's a very unique, it's a very complicated situation right now when you consider Josh Hader, his future with the club, and if he doesn't have a long-term future with the club, when it makes the most sense to possibly move yeah. him. And then you brought up Devin Williams. This is actually the second offseason in a row he's dealing with an injury. Uh, back in 2020, he missed the postseason due to a shoulder issue, which didn't need surgery, thankfully. But the point I'm bringing up is 
led to his slow start in 2021 because he didn't get a full spring training. And now the broken hand, are they going to be as cautious with him in spring training? Again, I know it's different. It's not the shoulder, it's the hand, that kind of thing. But that's going to be the second spring training in a row that he's recovering from an injury. And, you know, that to me, a little concerning, but, you know, hopefully he, you know, does um, fully recover from that. And you brought up the, you know, hater, but they also, you know, do potentially for arbitration. You brought up the MOB trade rumors, but there's also uh, Woody, Omar Navias, Corbin Burns, Willie Adamas, Lauer, Urias, Suter, Hauser, Vogelbach, Teles. Peterson, Malley, and uh, uh, Gustav, they're all potentially due for pay raises this year as well. Um, yeah, and so I, I always I predict like what players are going to get tendered a contract. So if you get tendered a contract, that means uh, at, at the very least you are going to go to arbitration. Generally, more often than not, you agree to terms prior to going to arbitration, and uh, that's that's a better way to do it because the arbitration system is just you literally walk into a room and listen to your employer tell you why you don't deserve to make the money that you want to make. It's a really negative, bad thing to go through, and you you don't want to see a player go through it. So if you can avoid it, uh, but yeah, hurt feelings have happened in the past because yeah, of absolutely. Oh, it happens every year. <laughs> if if I was a major league baseball general manager or president of baseball operations, I would do everything in my power to never go to an arbitration hearing. If if I am if I am separated out by a million dollars with somebody, if it's, you know, five million versus six million or something, and they won't even come to like the midway point of 5.5, like we're talking $500,000 difference at that point, uh, spend the money and avoid walking into that room. That would be, that would be my thought. But you look at these, you know, you look at the numbers and you say, okay, is this player worth this amount of money? And for some of the guys, clearly the answer is yes. Brandon Woodruff, his arbitration projection is uh, just over $7 million. He's absolutely worth $7 million. You would think that they'll probably work out a deal with Woodruff and avoid arbitration with him, uh, but he, he's worth that money. But let's say Daniel Vogelback, they'd probably, especially if there's going to be a DH in the National League next year, they'd probably like to have him back. They'd probably like to have him uh, come back It's in spring, but... Are they going to go to arbitration with the Daniel Vogelback? No. So to me, he screams of somebody who's either going to be non-tendered or who very early on they're going to come to some sort of agreement on him to come back on a, on a club-friendly deal. You can probably say the same thing about Jace Peterson, even though his projection is only $1.3 million. Uh, is he really worth going to arbitration on? A bunch of guys on on this list. Rowdy Telez is an interesting, uh, and, and that probably has a lot to do with what the team wants to do at first base. If they view Telez as a long-term answer at first base, then you don't risk losing him. But if they've got other ideas and other plans at first base, then you probably don't uh, offer him, uh, you probably don't tender him a contract, and you end up seeing what happens. So it's... Uh, Every year, I think the Brewers are going to tender more contracts than they actually do. I am horrible, horrible, horrible at trying to guess who will get tendered a contract and who will not get tendered a contract. At this point, it's it's Brandon Woodruff, Willie Adamas, Corbin Burns, Eric Lauer, and probably Luis Urias and Adrian Hauser, who I think you absolutely don't risk losing. And 
those those other, and Josh Hader. I, I didn't mention Hader's name and probably Suter. But I bet they get a deal done with Suter anyways. Uh, but yeah, it's just there's a lot of guys. And the other point that you made, Evan, and, and it's the the most important. Again, I'm rambling, but it's the most important part here. All those guys get raises when you go to arbitration. You're getting a raise. So when you've got, let's see, I think they're third in Major League Baseball with arbitration eligible. Yeah, they have 14 arbitration eligible players. 14 guys who are going to get raises, plus a Christian Yelich contract that's going to kick in, plus some other deals that escalate as, as they move forward. There is a high percentage of total payroll that is already accounted for going into next season. Yeah, a lot. And there's two guys that could uh, help relieve some of that payroll. You mentioned one before in Garcia, the other one, Jackie Bradley Jr. They both have options. That they could opt out or opt in. Um, I think mutual options, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, what's the likelihood of those two coming back? Do you feel they, you know, cause obviously Garcia could probably make some serious money in the open market. Yeah. Um, what's the likelihood that they either both come back or they're asked to come back? Yeah, so Garcia is a mutual option, and JBJ is a player option, okay. if I have that correct. So I would expect Garcia to opt out, to be honest with you, because he just had a career year where he hit 29 home runs, and now he possibly has the opportunity to become a free agent. Now, the big the big thing in all this is we don't know if there's going to be a baseball season next yeah. year because there's no collective bargaining agreement. So there might be some agents out there that say to their clients – Opt in, have a contract, be be secure in where you're at. Don't test free agency in a time where negotiations and relations between players and owners are really, really bad. So the reason for Garcia to opt in for next year is just to have the security of his contract. JBJ is a, is a much more complicated uh, question because it comes down to he had a really bad year. He had a real, like, I'm not breaking anything news here. He had an abysmal season. And there's no reason to believe that he would ever have a season like that again. Not that it can't happen, but you wouldn't believe it's going to happen. He has a track record of being a much, much, much better. He performed at this past year. So you, if you're JBJ, who's always been an American league guy, you're probably saying to yourself, okay, do I opt out of the contract? I've got an opt out. Do I opt out of the contract? and try to latch on with another team, maybe an American League team, where I could be more comfortable and my numbers have a better chance of being able to bounce back? Or do I, do I opt in and I make more money? Because he's not going to get money on the free agent market this year that he's being paid by the Brewers. It's just not going to happen. Not coming off the season that he just came off of, he is not going to get that kind of money in free agency this year. So for me, it almost feels like He's going to have to decide between the security of the contract that he's got versus trying to decipher whether or not he's got the opportunity to be as successful as he would like to be in Milwaukee. And then before we move into what I want to do, talk about next was that collective bargaining issue. Um, One player that they were expecting a lot from, but unfortunately he just couldn't seem to find a groove. He, I think probably, I think a good series against Pittsburgh and then fizzled from there is a guy. They tried to move to first base, Keston Hira. Um, I know they talked, uh, Stearns mentioned for next season, first, second, and even outfield potentially options for him. Um, He's been successful his first year in the majors, partial year, very successful, 
but now we're looking at two seasons in a row where he's been uh, not very good. Um, and he's one, I guess, what do you do with him? Does he a, a bounce back candidate like Corbin Burns was in 2019? Or have you seen enough from him to determine that he just doesn't hack it at, you know, at the major league level? Yeah, so I have to, to answer the second part of your question first. No, I haven't seen enough. There's there's no, there's nothing there to indicate whether or not he is going to be a very good major leaguer. That's a, uh, but there's also not a track record. I talk about track records so much, and Keston here does not have a major league track record. He has uh, 84 games in 2019 where he hit the heck out of the ball with a 303 average, 19 home runs, and a 938 OPS. In 2020, he hit 212 with a 707 OPS. In 2021, he hit 168 with a 557 OPS. Now, that being said, uh, you look at even his AAA numbers this past year, the, the, the power was there at AAA. He had an 839 OPS in his AAA games this season. So the Brewers still believe in him, and he, he you don't just throw – prospects away it goes back to the Corbin Burns conversation yeah development doesn't start stop when you walk into a major league clubhouse for the first time it continues on and development is also not a linear thing it's not just a straight line going up there's going to be some peaks and valleys it's a bit of a roller coaster for many players and most players don't stick in the big leagues their first time up you know you you, you get to AAA and then you kind of go up and down a few times before you finally establish yourself as, as a major leaguer. That's not true for everybody, but it's true for most guys. And here I had, had personal stuff going on with the, the medical issues that his mom was dealing with. There's just, there's a lot going on. So the Brewers still believe in him. I think he's going to go into spring training next year with an opportunity to win a major league job. But that being said, it's going to be different than this past year because he's not going to be given a job essentially. You know, he went into spring training this year uh, slotted in as the everyday first baseman. I would suspect that he's going to go into spring training next year with the opportunity to compete for a major league job. And as you alluded to, his role is now different. I don't think the Brewers view him right now as a guy who's going to be an everyday first baseman. They don't have a place available for him to be an everyday second baseman. Uh, they don't have a place for him to be an everyday outfielder, nor would you probably want to put him there. But him playing a little bit of outfield, he, the Brewers got stuck in a situation. I think it was this year. Wasn't it this year? Everything runs together. I thought they got stuck in a situation this year where he ended up playing a little bit of outfield. A yeah, player I was at that out- game. It was against Detroit. Okay. They put him out in left field. Actually made a nice catch. Yeah, a player got injured uh, after a switch had already been made, and then all of a sudden they didn't have any outfielders left, so they had to move him out to outfield and play somebody else on the infield. Uh, but they felt he was – of everybody on the infield who had to stay in the game, they felt most comfortable with putting him in the outfield. You know, that that elbow still worries you a little bit. That's part of the reason that second base and even first base makes sense for him because you're not there aren't you know long, deep, hard throws because it feels like at some point that elbow could and that's been a thing since you know, his final year in college, he was the DH every day. He never played in the field simply because of his elbow. So he only hit. And that's something that's always been there. And there's always been a feeling that it could turn into something and he could need surgery. And if he, if he has that kind of injury could miss an entire season or the rest of the season, depending on, on when it happens. So what, I mean, the point that I'm getting to is we really don't know uh, who Keston here is as a major league hitter. 
the jury is absolutely still out. He, he certainly has the opportunity to uh, get back to being the guy he was when he first got to the big leagues. But there's a chance that who we've seen the last couple of years is who he is as a major league hitter. And he's kind of that 4A hitter kind of guy. And I just I don't think the Brewers are going to be counting on him going into spring. Yeah, and I believe I thought I saw he was having his elbow cleaned out. Yeah. So maybe that'll help him a little bit with that issue with the elbow and prolong having to have something more serious done to it. Yeah, it's uh, that's just it, that doesn't fix the the major yeah. underlying issue. It's just uh, yeah, like you said, it's kind of a cleanup deal. Yeah. Um, you brought up DH before. That could be a role for him in the future too if they do bring a DH in 2022 and beyond. With the collective bargaining coming up, do you see? that being likely in this upcoming CBA where they agree on a DH. I was surprised we didn't have one in 2021. And what's the, what do you think the likelihood is of a work stoppage and this 2022 season starting on time? Yeah. I, I hate the question and not that you shouldn't ask it, but I hate it because of what we have to discuss. Um, and I, cause I'm worried. I'm, I am incredibly worried <laughs> about a, a work stoppage. Uh, if I was the players and the owners, I would actually say we like we're still coming out of this pandemic. We don't really know what revenues are going to look like here over the next few years. Let's just take the deal that we play that we've been playing under and let's just extend it one more year and let's revisit it next season when you hope that things normalize out in our world is coming out of the pandemic that much more. That's what I would do, but that there's common sense connected to that. And it seems more often than not when players and owners dig in against each other, they don't have a whole lot of common sense. So uh, the, the collective bargaining agreement negotiations scare me because players and owners don't get along the leadership on both sides. When it comes to negotiation, I'm not a big fan of either because it just seems like they don't have that spirit of working together because <clears throat> They want the same thing. This is the stupid thing. They want the same thing. They want to play baseball. Each side is is trying to make that happen, yet they're coming at it from such different perspectives, and they're so unwilling to compromise seemingly on just about anything and everything that's happened. Even last year when they were negotiating how long the season was going to be, you know, that got – at one point it looked like they may not even play again. I mean, it's just there's so many things have led up, and there's – uh, there's this feeling of collusion that owners are coming together to try to tamp down salaries all the way around. It's a really negative situation. They they didn't go to a DH. It's weird. This is the perfect example. Players want the DH. Owners want the DH. They can't agree to the DH <laughs> because the players feel like if they go to the DH, they're giving something away and they want more back forward. It was the same thing with the expanded playoff. Major League Baseball wanted to have an expanded playoff this year. The players, they're not against the expanded playoff, but if they're going to give that up because an expanded playoff is so much more revenue. So if they're going to give the owners this vehicle to create all this extra revenue, the players want a fair amount back for it. And it certainly felt like the owners weren't willing to give back. I mean, if you're doing it for a one-year sort of thing, if if the player, if the owners go to the players and say, we're going to expand the playoff and any extra money that we create as a result of the expanded playoff, so the extra revenue beyond what's already locked in, we'll share that revenue 50-50. Like, that seems like a fair thing to me. But that's not something that 
the player, the owners were willing to do. So just everybody's digging in and nobody wants to work together. And the people that end up losing are the innocent bystanders. And those are the fans. So I think there's going to be baseball next season. I do. But it, to me, it's like a 60-40 proposition. So if there's a 40% chance that there's going to be a work stoppage next year, that's a legitimate chance that there's going to be a work stoppage. So I'm not, I'm not expecting it, but I'm also not going to be anywhere near the vicinity of shocked if there is a work stoppage next year. And is this because I know Manfred's been involved in, in baseball for a while before he became commissioner, but if correct me, is this the first CBA that he's been commissioner for? Uh, no, I think uh, he was there for the last one. I okay. think, I think you're putting me on the spot on. <laughs> I just one. forget exactly when Bud Seeley retired and it's like, because baseball, it seems so the NFL, they're always 10 year increments for the most part. So we're not going to have a CBA issue in the NFL for another, what, nine years now, baseball seemed to do the more shorter term. So that's why I kind of get confused on the, who, you know, if he was commissioner or not, that's so Apologize for putting you on the spot. I just can't remember for sure. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he was there for uh, for the last one. I'm trying to look that up real quick, but I'm having a hard time uh, I'm, uh, trying to find that. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that he was um, he was there for the last one. Yeah, because I always forget when he took over, and I know he he's one that tends to be a lightning rod with fans too. As you know, he, he seems to, you know, Bud Selig, and I'm not saying Manfred doesn't have the love for the game, you know, but Bud Selig, you know, you could see that he wore that on his sleeve, just the love of baseball that he had. Manfred's hard to read if he has that same passion or not. He's more yeah. business-sensed. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so the the last CBA was signed in 2017, and Rob Manfred did negotiate uh, that one. The one before that was negotiated in 2012, and uh, that was Bud Selig leading the way, although Rob Manfred um, in the – so I, I just found the contracts um, on a website, and in the 2012 one, the principals on the Major League Baseball side of things are listed as Bud Selig and Rob Manfred. So Manfred was the number two guy negotiating in 2012, in 2007, he's the third guy listed uh, but between uh, – so he was involved in that one. In 2003, he's listed as the second guy – no, third play, third individual again under the principles. I, I can go on and on here. Um, yeah, because I know he's been around CBAs for a while, but it's kind of, I think it's kind of different when you're – potentially different when you're in that lead chair, you know? Yeah. So he's been in the lead chair once and he's been in the second chair once and he's been in the third chair twice. So he's been involved in four separate uh, CBA negotiations. uh, Manford has, I'm sorry. What was your, I I, I was looking that up. What was your last question? Oh, I just, I I, was just asking if he was, uh, if this is his first CBA or not. So you basically just answered it. So, yeah. And, um, I don't know, like, and it, it to, but to the point of his love of baseball as well, he doesn't, he doesn't seem like a guy who is overly passionate. I think it was, um, it was Scott Boris. Scott Boris does a uh, state of Scott Boris address every year at the baseball winter meetings, and it was Boris last year who said, yeah, because Manford, from a legal standpoint, from a money standpoint, from financial, like all that, he's really good. He's really good. The problem is. He's running baseball, and when it comes to 
like passion for the game and fan engagement and things that are good for fans. Uh, he's not so great with that. I think it was Scott Boris who uh, this past year said, you know, baseball needs to, they can leave him in his role to do what he does, but then bring in like a CEO who deals with baseball stuff and non-legal stuff and fan engagement and like all the stuff that like people listening to this podcast and watching this, this podcast, the things that they really care about are not revenue sharing and are not, you know, they they want blackouts that you don't want to live in the middle of Iowa and have six separate major league baseball teams blacked out on MLB TV. Like that's what you care about. Well, that's not number one on Rob Manfred's list. Uh, You might care about, uh, the ball being put in play a lot. Well, that's not real high on Rob Manfred's list. He's, he's doing other things because he works for the owners and the owners want to create as much revenue as possible. So bringing somebody in to oversee kind of the things that most fans care about would probably make a whole lot of sense. Uh, and, and maybe that would, you know, Theo's involved, Theo Epstein's involved in Major League Baseball a little bit. Maybe eventually that's a role that he moves into, although it sounds like he also would like to be involved in the, the ownership side of things. But baseball obviously has some things to work through, and, and Rob Manfred's not a great commissioner. Yeah, marketing is a big thing. I know you just know on the head, bringing somebody that focuses on fan engagement or marketing because your players that are kind of your cornerstone players, nobody knows. You know, yeah. Mike Trout, I know he dealt with injuries this year, but you know, you're not promoting, using him, to my opinion, enough to promote the game. Same with Otani. Like, they should be plastered all over the place. Yeah, so, Evan, if you and I are walking at the Milwaukee Public Market and we've got Mike Trout with us, nobody's saying a thing. No. Nobody's saying a thing. If we got Tom Brady with us, somebody's saying something. If we've got LeBron James with us, somebody's saying something. If we got Giannis, we got Kevin Durant. Um, you know, Aaron Rodgers, whoever. Yeah, like, these other sports, the top players are known so much more and I don't even know, like, who's the most marketable player? It's not Mike Trout. I don't, I don't know who the most marketable player was, or even the last time you had that in baseball. It might have been the McGuire-Sosa home run chase and then the Bond stuff after yeah. that. Like, at that point in time, you could not walk anywhere in the United States of America with Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, or Barry Bonds without people recognizing them. Uh, who else? Who since then has, has been that – that notable that you know in, in baseball I, I don't i don't think there has been yeah and it's not that those potential people aren't there it's just i don't feel baseball does a good enough job putting them front and center no absolutely not so i know ryan howard was a what re- recognizable player for a while especially with the subway stuff but Eat fresh yeah <laughs> uh, before i let you go um obviously you know brewers are you know, one Wisconsin team. There's also Packers and the Bucks. So I just want to get your early thoughts on the Packers' start to the season and some of the moves they're making. In fact, that they just signed pass rusher today, um, signed Jalen Smith two weeks ago, and um, forget the corner's name um, that they got from Carolina. So, what are your early thoughts on the Packers sitting at five and one going into the Washington Football Team on Sunday? Yeah, they're who we thought they were going to be this year. A really, really good team, and we're not going to get any questions answered until they get to the postseason. Can they Have they improved enough to get past the NFC Championship game? And kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, you look at what ended your season the year before when you were in a championship window, and you fix that. Did 
you know, it was, it was defense, some defensive issues, especially in the secondary that probably ended the Packers season last year in the NFC championship game. An offensive line play as well. Okay. Um, did they without fix Bakhtiari. that? Hmm. O-line's doing pretty well so far without him. Yeah, and Bakhtiari's back practicing that way this week. Yeah. So that's, uh, that, that's good. But that's the, the Packers are exactly who we thought they were going to be. They're a really good team. They're one of the two or three best teams in the NFC. And no matter how well they play in the regular season, we are not going to be able to answer a single question about them until the NFC Championship game and or when their season ends, if their season ends before the NFC Championship game. You know, your description there sounded a lot like a, another Milwaukee team last year with the Milwaukee Bucks. Last year, it doesn't matter what we saw from the Bucks in the regular season. What mattered is that they fix what they needed to fix in order to be successful in the playoffs. And in the Bucks' case, they obviously did as they got their championship rings uh, last night with their win over the Nets. Um, made a lot of changes to the roster. Um, Grayson Allen, for example, Hood, uh, let P.J. Tucker go. What are your thoughts on the Bucks 2021-2022 season? Yeah, I mean, their depth is incredible. Um they're they're going to be right there. They're going to be right there once again competing. They're uh, they're top two, top three team in the East. They're a top four, top five team in the NBA. They are on the short list of teams that will be contending for. I think I lost your audio. Do you have me still? Yep, got you now. Okay, sorry. Uh, top two, top three team in the East. Top four, top five team in all of uh, the NBA. And um, yeah, you love their depth. It seems like they're better this year because of their depth, both from a like a. You know, the, the development of, say, like a Jordan Nawara, the addition of a Grayson Allen. Uh, Dante DiVincenzo is going to be back at, at some point. Uh, it's just a really, really, really good team. And they've done, they've done a really nice job of building around the core. And they've, been a re- they've done a really good job of being able to create a lot of continuity with the main pieces of the roster. So that's uh, – there's no reason to believe – I'm not a championship – like. Per, uh, it's such a crapshoot when you get to the postseason. Just look at last year, and we all know about Kevin Durant's shoe. <laughs> if his shoe size is one thing shorter, they, their run ends in the Eastern uh, Conference Finals. Does that Some mean they're not as yeah. good of a team last year as they were? No, they're, they're the exact same team. Kevin Durant wore a, a smaller shoe. That's how tight things are, especially in the postseason. So I can't sit here and predict that the Bucks are going to win uh, the NBA championship again, but I would believe that they'll be right there competing for it. Yeah, and I know last night was only one game, and you still had the emotions of the ceremony and whatnot. And then just a couple of the preseason games I saw, they did seem to have a much different um, attitude about them. They seem to have that that you know, winning a championship does a lot. You know, Giannis seems more confident with shooting his jumpers now. His free free throws routine is different. Mm-hmm. Um, they just seem to have that championship uh, confidence now, and you know, I think that's nice to see as well. Like they know they can do it. So let's do it again. Yeah. I saw, uh, I saw a picture on Twitter today that showed Giannis's free throw shooting form from last year to this year. And last year for people watching, like his arm was almost up like this when he started. And now it's more like this as people see my very pasty white arm. (laughs) And uh, so that maybe that's something, you know, like let's see that that was one of the areas of his game that was not great. He clearly has made a change. Not a whole lot. It was a very short offseason. Not a lot of time to make said changes, but he seemingly made a change just based off uh, that picture that I saw on Twitter. I'm not completely locked in on, on yeah. everything that's going on there, but 
it'll be fun to see how that uh, that works out. Yeah, and his routine yesterday was quicker too. It's two dribbles and shoot rather yeah. than the the crowd sarcastically counting to the quickest ten count I've ever heard in my life, to be honest. But still, um, but before I do let you go, and you know, appreciate you coming on and talking with uh, the Brewers and whatnot. Um, just one last, you know, let people know where to, to find your find your work for those that want to follow. Sure. Uh, on Twitter, at Matt Pauley on air, M-A-T-T-P-A-U-L-E-Y on air. We still have Brewers Weekly on Thursday nights when there's not a Bucks game. We still have uh, the Brewers Extra Innings podcast, which drops on Sunday nights uh, for basketball fans. Uh, I'm the play-by-play broadcaster for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay women's basketball team, um, and I do a bunch of other play-by-play as well. And I'm involved other places, just uh, I, everything I've got going on is always uh, pushed out on Twitter, so that's the best way to kind of keep up. I'm a busy guy. Cool. Well, like I said, thank you uh, so much for coming on, talking uh, Brewers with me. Normally it's through, uh, you know, during waiting for the BEI to start or whatever, as I'm one of the ones that, you know, answers the phones and whatnot for those uh, Brewers post-game and pre-game shows. But it's nice to have you on and talk some Brewers here. And, you know, the season, as I said, didn't end the way you wanted it to. But now we have a potentially fun offseason to look forward to. You bet, Evan. Thanks for having me. Yep. Have a good rest of your night. You too. And um, once again, thank you to Matt Pauley for coming on and talking some Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, you know, I love listening to Matt, uh, both as producer and then as a, uh, you know, as a just a, a regular listener on WTMJ talking Brewers. I can, you know, listen to Matt talk for, for days and hours about baseball and the Brewers. So, Appreciate him coming on and talking about the season a little bit and, you know, what could happen in 2022. Um, again, thanks. That's Matt Pauley um, at Ma- Matt Pauley on air. You see it on the bottom ticker for those that are going to be watching the video. Um, but for those that are listening to the podcast, either on iTunes or Spreaker or Spotify, wherever podcasts are found, it's at Matt Pauley on air, M-A-T-T-P-A-U-L-E-Y on air. And he's a guy you want to follow if you want brewer information, baseball information, brewer information. Um, You know, he's well-versed in pretty much everything. So, again, thank you, Matt. And before I do let you guys go, a little longer show than I normally go, but, you know, you get talking baseball, and I can talk for hours about baseball. So a couple things I just want to uh, touch base on. I'm not going to go really any further on the Bucks right now. I'm going to have my my Bucks guy on coming up possibly tomorrow. Um, Tristan Thomas uh, from Home Court Sports. He'll be on um, to talk uh, more Bucks and Bucks preview. Um, I kind of got out what I wanted to say about the Bucks, about just they seem to have that championship confidence with them. Pat C puts up 20 last night. He just seemed a lot more confident with his ability on the court. Uh, Wara seemed a lot more confident about everything. So I think the Bucks have a chance to definitely repeat. Um, going into the season. So Packers-Bears is what I want to touch on. Um, hearing a lot about it being an ugly win, but guess what? It's still a win. They still won the game. They Did they win it as pretty as they did against, I don't even, like Detroit, I guess? That, you know, because every like most of the games, other than their loss against the Saints, it's been, quote, ugly. And Packers are still working on finding what their identity is, especially on defense. And the defense has made strides over the past few, uh, past few weeks. Um, I'm very impressed with the defense getting better. 
under Joe Barry. I was not a big fan of the move. Um, not a big fan of the move when they when they got him. Um, a lot of concerns there as he has not been successful really any place he's been coordinator. But he's starting to be successful at um, Green Bay, and the defense is playing with more confidence. It seems to be we every every week, and a lot of that is uh, Campbell in that middle. You know, like last year they brought in Kirksey to try to fill that middle linebacker spot. It didn't work. Uh, Morrison didn't work. B.J. Goodson didn't work. But with Campbell, they seem to have finally fixed that middle linebacker position. And the defense played pretty well against Chicago. And I know it's the Bears, rookie quarterback, offensive line isn't very good. But here's the thing. You got to win the games you're expected to win. They're expected to beat the Bears, and they did. They're expected to beat the Bengals, and they did, even though they took overtime and several missed field goals to get there. They were supposed to beat Pittsburgh, and they did. They're supposed to beat Detroit, and they did. San Francisco, myself included, thought it was going to be a loss. A lot of people did, and they got that victory. So really, if you think about it, they've only probably the one loss they have against the Saints is probably one that I feel they should have won. They didn't come out prepared properly for it, and the Saints did. Um, The only game that they were probably supposed to lose that they've won is San Francisco. And you win the games you're supposed to, Cincinnati, Chicago, um, Pittsburgh, win those games and Washington coming up on Sunday. Those are teams you're supposed to beat. If you are one of the top teams in the NFC, you've been one of the final two in the NFC the last two years. Those are teams you're supposed to beat. It doesn't matter how pretty it is or how ugly it is. Just get the wins that you're supposed to. That That's my, my thought there. If you can steal some games that you're not supposed to win, Arizona coming up is going to be tough. Kansas City coming up is going to be tough as two examples. If you can steal a couple of those, that's the difference of a 13-4 and four, um 14 and 3 team or a 11 and 6, 10 and 17. That's the difference there. Win the games you're supposed to, and the Packers are supposed to win all their division games. Currently, they're 2 and 0 in the division, and win a couple games that people don't think you're going to win. Baltimore, for example. Win those games, and you can steal a couple and get a one or two seed in the NFC. So. I was fine with how the Packers played defensively. Kenny Clark is being Kenny Clark, the dominant player that we all want him to be. I love Kenny Clark. Um, Dean Lowry has played now three games in a row um, where he has just been outstanding, maybe four games. Um, San Francisco is when Lowry started pulling it together. Lancaster has been playing better. Um, Everyone on the D-line is playing better right now, and I think a lot of it has to do with Kenny Clark's production. He's getting so much attention with just how much he's controlling that line of scrimmage that those guys, Lowry, Lancaster, Kiki, Slayton, they're winning their battles right now. Can they continue that long-term? Week 8, week 10, week 12, week 17, can those guys continue to win their battles up front? The Packers are only going to go as far, in my opinion, and Matt nailed it right on the head. The Packers are who we thought they were going to be right now. But to me, they're only going to go as far as they're going to if their defensive line and their offensive line play outstanding football. The D-line right now is playing outstanding football. Is it going to be sustainable long-term? I don't know. Offensive line has been playing some really good football. They struggled a little bit against the Bears early on, 
Um, but you know, Jenkins back at left tackle after missing three, four weeks. Um, you lost Myers on the opening drive. So you had to put Lucas Patrick back in. But once the Packers altered their offensive game plan, which to start the game was questionable, like why are you doing a lot of empty sets and uh, shotguns and things like that? You moved more under center, close sets, um, you know, stacked, things like that, moving people around. Um, it opened up some of the running lanes, putting guys in motion and playing more under, under center and that. It opened up the running game, and you were able to start running the ball on Chicago. I think the Packers sometimes, I think LaFleur, very great, a very good coach. He's a great coach. I think he overthinks things sometimes. And he wants to kind of get kind of get cute with it, I guess would be a way to say it. Um, just stick to the game plan. Let Aaron Jones be the focal point of what you do offensively, either running the ball or throwing it to him. Use Aaron Jones as a weapon because Aaron Jones being used as a weapon opens up a lot. It forces the other team to have to potentially devote a safety to account for wherever Aaron Jones is on the field. And when you have to account for wherever Aaron Jones is on the field, guess what? Guess who you open up even more? Devontae Adams, who is on pace for a record-setting year, a record-setting year on catches and yards. Jones being so versatile, dominant, you open up Devontae Adams even more. You open up Lazard. You open up, hopefully, eventually, Robert Tanyan, who hasn't played well the past few weeks, especially blocking. So when they started making Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon the focal point of the offense on Sunday, things started clicking. Things started clicking. And it worked tremendously. And the Packers got the victory. I was disappointed that Ikamenia St. Brown's touchdown reception got called back for offensive pass interference. I personally don't think it was offensive interference, but they did call it that way. I don't agree with it, but they did. Mechanically, the officials struggled on Sunday quite a bit. They really struggled mechanically. And that's something that the NFL needs to clean up with their officials because that wasn't the only game either that they, they, they struggled with mechanics and explaining and things like that. And then the other hot topic from the Packer game is Aaron Rodgers and his I still own you comment. I enjoyed it. Okay. I personally enjoyed Aaron Rodgers. I still own you. I've always owned you um, comment because it, 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 it helps bring the morale and the confidence and the excitement of every player around him. Look at his teammates around him when he said it. Like there's pictures circulating on Twitter from when Aaron Rodgers commented, you know, the, the whole I own you, I still own you, I've always owned you, um, whatever the exact quote is. I know there's profanity in there too. Um, when Rodgers said it, his teammates got even more excited, even more fired up. And for somebody, you know, questioning, which a lot of people did, his dedication to the Packers um, go, during this offseason of Rodgers, that whole situation there, it just shows you how much he's bought in to the 2021 Packers season. Does that mean he's going to stay in 2022? I don't know. It's way too soon to tell. The only way he does stay is they reach a contract extension to spread out some of that money that he has and give him some new money. Um, that's really the only way he can stay with his cap hit for 2022 right now. But in, in the meantime, I'm enjoying what I'm seeing from Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. And Matt nailed it on the head. Did they correct what they needed to correct 
from the past couple of years where they fell short, which was mostly defense, and then offensive line, and you know, without Bakhtiari in the championship game, they they missed him a lot. Did they do enough to do fix what they needed to in order to take that next step? Which was the same comment we made about the Bucks um, all season long. It's not about the regular season. It doesn't matter what the it doesn't matter what the Packers do in the regular season as long as they get victories. They can they can win out from here on out. They can go 16-1. and one. But did they do enough to win these games when it matters most, and that's in the playoffs, and that's where they've fallen short the last two years. Back-to-back 13-3 and three seasons. Right now they're 5-1. and one. Did they do enough to get over that hump? And that's what we're going to find out. I think they're better in the middle with um, – Campbell there, Jalen Smith signing is going to be a plus. I know he didn't play well um, last week in 15 snaps, but first game as a Packer, give us some time to get accustomed to the Packer way of, uh, of doing things. And then Merce, uh, the signing they made today, the Texans uh, released Whitney Mercellus. Um, he's a guy that can bring you more of a pass rush that you're missing without Zadarius Smith. And who knows if Preston Smith's going to miss some time. So that's what you need to do. And one final thing on Rogers comment, I saw a few people on Twitter and on some of the local uh, sports talk stuff commenting about how, you know, what, it, what do your, what do my kids think? You know, I, I, I know that was a couple callers and people who text into some of the sports talk shows they didn't like it because the influence it has on their kids. Yes, professional athletes have influences on on um on kids. They do. Um, they say they're not role models, but at the end of the day, that is who these kids emulate. Em- emulate. But here's the thing: it's your job as a parent, and I'm not a parent, so I I'm not one. You know, I shouldn't give parental advice here. But ultimately, it's your job as a parent to help your child understand that, yeah, it's cool that Aaron Rodgers did this, but it's not okay to do it. You may think it's cool, but this is why it's not. It's your job to teach your kids morals and ethics and sportsmanship and things like that. And then understand that things happen in the heat of the moment. It was an intense moment. He runs it in for a touchdown it was a struggle at times to beat the Bears, but at the end of the day, it's not Aaron Rodgers' job to teach your kids sportsmanship. His job is to lead the Packers to victory week in and week out. It's the parents' job to have that conversation with their kid on why it's probably not how you should behave in a sporting event. So with that said, do appreciate everybody for watching. Um, those that are going to be listening in the future, um, once I post the recorded version, um, for those watching on Twitter fa- and Facebook, the recorded version will be posted tomorrow morning, probably right around seven thirty, eight o'clock ish. Um, on anywhere you find uh, podcasts, I will also tweet out the link as well. Big big thank you to Matt Pauly for coming on, talking Brewers with me. Um, it was an honor having him on. Uh, he's you know he's you know, Matt is one of the genuine good guys in the field. Um, not saying they're not all good people, but I, I know Matt from working with him now for three years, doing Brewer stuff for Brewers Extra Innings, producer, uh, produced him for Brewers Weekly. 
Um, I've been around Matt for a few years now, and he is truly one of the good people out there today. Um, and a big thank you for him for coming on and um, having the conversation about the Brewers with me. With that said, I will talk to you all hopefully later this week if I can confirm uh, my guest for tomorrow. Otherwise, uh, Friday, I'll preview Packers and the Washington football team. Until then, have a good one and be safe.